when we come into the monastery to live and practice, it obviously takes some time to adjust to the different lifestyle. In the monastery, uh, everything is done referring back to the Dhamma and the Vinaya as taught by the Lord Buddha and our teachers such as Lumpur Cha. So they compare the Dhamma Vinaya as like a stake driven into the ground. And our idea is to keep close to that because it gives us a reference point for all our behavior and our practice and obviously with the aim to follow in the footsteps of the Buddha and our teachers towards liberation, freedom from suffering and the discontent we might have already realized we have. So we use this stake or post as a reference point. Obviously if we drift too far away from it, then we're not going to be true to our aim to practice for liberation and we won't find much liberation. We'll probably find ourselves back towards more stress and suffering as we noticed before in our lay life. And the idea of the practice is to develop our own foundation, our own stake driven into the ground through our own experience and practice so we know what is the path that will lead to liberation and what is not. Until that point we have to rely on our teachers and the training ways, ways of practice, ways of Vinaya on ways of meditation, ways of reflection. What in Thailand they call the Kowat. Kowat means the monastic practices and regulations. By following them, these give us a foundation or like a stake driven in the ground, a reference point in our own hearts internally. One of the reasons we come to Buddhism and come to practice is because we realize in the world there's not much in the way of guidance or foundation for measuring human behavior. <coughs> Most of our experience in the world we find there's a lot of confusion many, many different views and opinions, attitudes, 
which affect our thinking and our behavior and those around us, obviously. It's not necessarily much clarity or wisdom in the world. And therefore, there's a lot of suffering in the world. Say the tendency for society now is towards what we call freedom, but that's freedom to pursue our own desires and seek happiness in whatever way we feel best. But of course that's not necessarily the best thing for us, that kind of freedom, if there's no underlying wisdom guiding it. In the monastery we have search for freedom, but we use Dhamma Vinaya, and in the beginning often seems like we have very little freedom, because the Vinaya is very refined, many rules that we try to adhere to strictly governing our behavior. And when we compare that what we've had in the past as lay people and then what we find in monastic training. Often there's some friction there. Because we like, we think we like, and we think it's good for us to have the freedom to choose what we want to do. See? To come and go when we want, to spend our time how we want, say what we want, think what we want eat what we want, do what we want, and so on. And you come into the monastery and you can't do this, you must do that. There's a routine, there's all kinds of rules and practices. So we have to reflect on that, why is it like that? Why did the Buddha lay down the Vinaya, why did Ajahn Chah teach in this way? It's because in the long term we will gain freedom, but in a different way than we perhaps previously understood. The freedom that comes through the monastic tra training is the freedom from the effects of craving and clinging, which really are we're enslaved to when we begin the practice. All our actions and all our thoughts and our feelings are pretty much just a slave to kilesa, greed, hatred, delusion, pulling us around everywhere. They make up our world. This training is to take us away from the all-encompassing effects of the kilesa, the power of the kilesa, to experience true freedom or liberation internally in our minds and our hearts. But that takes time, so we have to bear that in mind as we take up the training.
in the world we unfortunately tend to follow greed, hatred and delusion we have in the past have to remind ourselves where did it get us it doesn't lead to peace of mind contentment, happiness it leads to agitation discontent, confusion physical and mental pain leads to conflict with other people, rivalries, conflict. It leads to our own internal conflicts. The way of our culture now is very much consumer-based, constantly caught in a kind of a trap, always having to go out to get money so that we can get more things. And that seems correct the advances of technology, the convenience that's available in the world, I means we're pretty much trapped into that way of thinking, always looking for more and better. Very distracting for the mind, very absorbing for our mind, but underlying that is pretty much just greed even though we have the basic necessities that we might reflect on as a bhikkhu, as a monk, we have enough food, shelter, robes, medicines. And in the world we certainly have that. And yet people are always seeking more. Greed takes over. Always want more and more and more different produces a lot of dissatisfaction, disappointment. You get what you want and then very soon you get bored with it or feel you need something slightly better. We also experience a lot of anger in the world, ill will, hatred, because of this frustration of having to deal with a consumer society, the rivalries over earning a living, making our way, making a name for ourselves in the world. It means we're often falling into conflict with others, being frustrated with others. And then because everybody has different standards of sila, morality, different ideals guiding them, all kinds of conflicts, confusion. Even if we're on, on our own, we still find discontent, ill will arising. We're often not trained in uh, the kind of skills that we need to be peaceful living in the world. And when we come into the monastery, we we're learning those, but we have to be willing to invest the time and the practice and to adjust to this change where we're starting to set aside desires and attachments and use the Dhamma Vinaya as our guideline for everything.
So this also brings out friction. But if we keep our perspective, we can see this friction is the, the suffering in the present that leads to liberation in the future. As we start to frustrate desire and attachment and then undermine it and remove it from the mind, from our experience. But it does take some time. So they have the simile of uh, bringing the log of wood out of the river onto the bank, giving it time to dry out. And when we come into the monastery, we're still wet wet behind the ears and just wet, wet in our senses. So we need time to dry out. As the wood dries out and it can be used for fire or even for making things, it can become something very useful and even beautiful. But there needs to be that time. I remember once when building a new little branch monastery, building a, a wooden timber hall. Somebody in the area, this is in Thailand, they uh, wanted to offer an old log. All the good wood in Thailand, the teak, the rosewood and so on, they, they often soak it into rivers, let it sit in a river, maybe for 20 years, just sitting there partly because it hides it from other people who might want to steal it. Partly it's a way to just store it where it's not ruined by the effects of sun and rain, constantly changing temperatures and so on. They'll just drop it into a river and let it sit there till they're ready to use it. This man wanted to offer the, this beautiful old Dakian tree very nice, dark, hardwood to help build the hall, to make the floor. You can make very beautiful floorboards. I had to get it out of the river. So they went and got a huge excavator to grab it, lift it up. The excavator slipping on the slopes of the river and the heaviness of the wood actually pulled the excavator down into the river everything looked like it's going for disaster. Legend has it in uh, Thailand they always say these big old trees obviously when they're standing they have a they say they have a deva living in that tree the guardian de deity of that tree. They say sometimes even when the tree is cut down the deva will still stay close to it. And this deva, they say, was still close to it. They invited the monks to chant, spread metta to the deva after the ceremony. Then they managed to recover the excavator and recover the log and get it to the monastery. Eventually it was, after many, many months, it was gradually worked with machinery, planed, made very smooth, cut up into planks, 
But the struggle of getting that log is just like the struggle of a practitioner coming away from the world into the monastery. It's a big effort just to get out of the river, just to get out of the world. It's not the end of the story though, we still have to dry out. We still have to work the wood, still have to work our minds using the Dhamma Vinaya. You know, the basic principles of Dhamma Vinaya. Learning to restrain our excesses of greed and anger, even though they might still be there in, inside the heart. We're learning to live in the, outwardly at least in a peaceful way, where we share what we have, practice the Brahmaviharas, kindness, compassion, tolerance. We share our knowledge, we share the requisites, and we learn to live simply, harmoniously. And this all supports the development of the internal qualities that we really need to liberate the heart from the effects of greed, hatred and delusion. And when we're using the training, training rules, putting effort in to restrain ourselves and live in this way, developing Brahmaviharas, living simply, it sets up suitable conditions for training the mind, for bringing up mindfulness. When you practice the Vinaya and the core what, it sharpens the mind because you become aware of what you're doing. You're bringing mindfulness to the present moment because you're always learning from your experience. What am I doing? Am I following the rules or not? What are the intentions that lie behind my actions? Are they wholesome and skillful or not? The more effort we put into the Vinaya training and the monastic training as a whole, it sharpens the mind. This is exactly what you need when you want to train in meditation. Sometimes Ajahn Chah would say when you, people would ask about the practice of Vinaya, you know, what's the point? He said it's that behavior which brings you to be able to focus on the in and out breath. That's what sila is, that's what vinaya is. You notice when you don't put much effort into sila, there's not much restraint. Craving and attachment are leading us all over the place. Well then we can't focus on the breath very easily. The mind just won't do it. It's not there, it's not refined enough, it's not in the present moment caught up into moods of excitement, or anger, or greed. But as we put effort into the Vinaya training in the monastic form, it supports very well the development of meditation. It's fairly easy to contemplate 
bring up mindfulness, contemplate the Dhamma. It's easy to come and sit meditation or walk meditation. It's even easy maybe to be mindful as we do other more mundane tasks. If we're restrained in our speech, our actions, then we can be mindful of the breath even as we walk around or wash our bowl or whatever. This is what we talk about when we talk about having this uh, foundation or this post, this stake driven into the ground. Uh, when we understand this principle, the role of Sila or Vinaya in supporting the practice of mindfulness, and then the role of Panya, wisdom, contemplation. Obviously, we talk about sila samadhi panya, but again, as Ajahn Chah used to say, panya really comes first. To see the value of sila, then you have to think about it, reflect on it, and then you get the motivation to put effort into restraining oneself, one's desires, and to follow the precepts, follow the Vinaya training. One sees the value of practicing mindfulness, even though it can be quite frustrating. As mindfulness improves and we experience more calm, then we see the value of that for supporting the deepening of insight. Just stands to reason if your mind is calm, you can contemplate things, you can look at things more closely in a more sustained way. Mind is not flitting around, jumping around, or falling asleep. We can actually observe and learn from our experience. As we say over and over again, you practice wisdom, obviously in the beginning it does just mean thinking. Thinking about the Dhamma we've learnt, But as mindfulness improves, then it's also just knowing, seeing, without necessarily a lot of thinking going on. And that's often a very subtle process, a process from just thinking about Dhamma to actually knowing or seeing Dhamma. And we'll move between the two. We have no choice. A lot of the time in the practice we're just having a conversation with ourselves about Dhamma. What is the right way of practice? What is the practice? Why do we practice? What is Kilesa? Where is it? How does it come up? What does it do? Why am I peaceful? Why am I not peaceful? And so on. The idea is when that conversation has developed, 
you've had it, you don't need to keep talking about it, then you can start to quieten down. Literally the verbalization in the mind doesn't have to be so, so much. If you've really calmed down and seen something, well you don't need to talk about it a lot, even with yourself. You just know it. It's like this. So we start to get familiar with Kilesa as the cause of suffering, meaning craving and attachment as a cause of suffering. Even where does craving and attachment come from? It comes from avicca, ignorance. And when we aren't aware of Dhamma, aren't aware of the Four Noble Truths, we aren't aware of Dhamma Vinaya, when the mind is f far away from this post, this stake that the Buddha drove into the ground, well then craving and attachment come up, take over. But when we are mindful and reflecting on the Dhamma, we can see the process at work, how craving comes up, conditioned, reinforced by habit and previous Previous craving that's come up conditions more craving, previous greed, previous anger. How does it come up? It comes up as feeling. And when the mind is quiet enough, mindfulness is sharp enough, we see what craving is always prompted by different kinds of feeling. So where is feeling coming? It's coming internally. It's a mental experience even though it depends on rupa, the body, to start it off with con sense contact, seeing, hearing, or just remembering. The feeling arises internally. So it tends to be just pleasure and pain in different forms. Subtle pleasure, coarse pleasure, subtle pain and discomfort or rather coarse pain, discomfort, sets off the craving. Obviously there's a whole variety of experiences where feeling is conditioning craving. <coughs> but if we're training in the mindfulness and observing our experience, we don't have to go traveling all over the place or looking at in many different places to see it happening. We just keep observing back at the heart itself, kind of the center of our experience, the mental heart, the jitta. And we'll see how p pleasure and pain is arising there in different forms, how we crave that and how we react to it and how we cling on to those reactions, they solidify in the mind, become more habitual and more f fixed in the mind. So those reactions become very, very automatic and they condition our whole outlook on life. What is what we like, what we don't like, what we want, don't want, what we think
think is good for us, what is not good for us, and so on. Upadana actually conditions bhava. Bhava, they translate existence, or sometimes realm of existence, or becoming. When you talk about a realm, it's sometimes helpful because it means the realm of the mind, the experience of the mind. We're talking about a deep underlying experience that's reinforced over and over again by this process of avicca, dana, upadana. This can obviously change over time depending on our karma, what we do. That brings us back to sila again and behavior. How we behave, body, speech and mind is changing us all the time. Depending on the quality of the karma we're making, good or bad, wholesome, unwholesome. And this will affect the realm of the mind the kind of underlying experience of the mind. So if we say, for instance, keep getting angry over and over again, that will keep bringing us painful feelings and experience, but maybe even physical and certainly mental. That will inform and condition our attachment and clinging, and the very realm of the mind maybe becomes very unhappy depressed, miserable. Maybe on the outside, we have the body of a human and we have outside, maybe even on the worldly level, maybe all kinds of success, good things. But on the inside, the realm of the mind may not be matching up with the external experience. Maybe on the inside, the realm of the mind is one of misery. It could even be a hell realm. Whereas on the outside, it might look like we're successful, happy and so on to other people. Or similarly, we might, on the inside, have the realm of a deva or brahma. Even the brahma-viharas, we're perfecting them. Maybe the mind is the mind of a brahma. Very refined with unconditional kindness, compassion. Maybe on the outside, not much to show. Maybe on the outside, just an ordinary bhikkhu, kind of an anonymous bhikkhu in the world with no possessions. Nobody knows, nobody sees. Nothing to show for it on the outside. On the inside, the mind might be the mind of a deva or brahma. This is bhava. Obviously, it's what leads to jati, to, to birth. What the world tends to talk about is reincarnation. We talk about just as more birth based on bhava, the realm of the mind, the level of becoming built up through one life. A whole lot of causes and conditions still affecting the mind that aren't finished with so that leads 
leads to more birth, a future life, another life. But just in this, this life we can already experience and understand this by looking at how our mind is conditioning itself and what we do with our mind. And then from extending from that what we do with our actions and our speech day after day. That's how we create our world and the realm of the mind inside. If we're willing to train in the Dhamma Vinaya and we use this foundation, this post that the Buddha established, drove into the ground and we stick close to it or even develop our own, then we're constantly investigating and then diminishing this whole process by which avicca, dhanha, upadana keep creating uh, discontent, suffering in the mind and reinforcing itself. It's a cyclical experience. Where do kilesas come from? Well, they come from previous kilesas that we didn't deal with. Greed, hatred and delusion arose, led us to make karma, experience the fruits of that karma, the vibhaka, the different experiences, pleasurable, unpleasant from that. Then more kilesa. That whole process just keeps spinning on, uninterrupted, unaddressed. But now through the practice, what the Buddha's given us, we can investigate and start to change that for the better. By understanding it, knowing what's going on. And obviously starting to abandon greed, hatred and illusion that keeps affecting the mind and that keeps creating the causes for more birth, more suffering. When we talk about Magapala, it's just that the intensity and the skillfulness of that process of interrupting this, this round of avijja, bhacchaya, dhanha, upadana, bhava, jati. Our skillfulness in seeing that, interrupting that, is improving the factors of the path, or the factors of enlightenment coming together in the mind. Means it can actually interrupt the process to the point where it's weakened little by little drastically to the point where you can put a limit on it. So they say it's that sodapana seven more lives at most, maybe even not that much. Because that process has just been interrupted to the point where it's and weakened to the point where it just can't keep going. It's like a fire starting to go out. Even though it's still burning, you put limits and boundaries around it so you know once the fuel in that fire goes out, that's it, it will go out be extinguished for good. That's why the Buddha put limits on this, 
he understood the mind, human mind so well, he said if you do develop the right qualities, the, the Eightfold Path, it will gradually diminish the Kilesas to the point where they can't condition the mind anymore. So the mind is free, liberated. We might not have experienced that yet, so there may be still some doubts in the mind as to what it's like in the unconditioned mind, mind of an arahant, what's it like? Well, we can't be sure. But we can be sure about the mind that is peaceful in the present moment when we give up greed, hatred and delusion in any of their forms, offshoots. That much we can know. That's where we can eradicate doubt uncertainty. The more we do that, then the more energy we'll get for the practice. The more we'll be willing to put forth effort in keeping the Vinaya, putting forth effort into sitting and walking, putting forth effort into some of the more difficult practices like Tudongawata, eating one meal a day, eating in one sitting, just in our bowl, in one vessel, staying in the forest, using three robes, maybe Nesajika, just being willing to put forth effort into meditating all night. These things we build on through our efforts. First of all, learning the basics, the sila, the vinaya, developing our techniques of meditation, building some calm, some inner sense of well-being. Then maybe we're in a position to take on some of the more stricter practices for a period of time. This is something we have to reflect on each individual for themselves. So today is uh, one perhaps opposed a day, so it's a time to put forth effort into meditation. Later on we'll have the Patimokha and we can also practice late into the night or even all night. So I'll leave you with these words for your reflection tonight. <clears throat> 